millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. As President Biden visits Israel, conflicting reports continue around the Al-Ali hospital blast in Gaza. Based on what I've seen, it appears as though it was done by the other team, not, not you. Plus, severe flooding hits Middleton and Cork after heavy rain from Storm Babette makes the town impassable. Fortunately, uh, what we've seen here in Middleton this evening are scenes of devastation. And a 30% increase on the number of road deaths. We speak with Assistant Commissioner Paula Hillman about how to combat this worrying trend. U.S. President Joe Biden wrapped up his visit to the Middle East. Israel has stated that it will allow limited aid to enter Gaza from Egypt. Despite these developments, neither side has accepted responsibility for the destruction of the Al-Ali Arab Hospital in Gaza, in which hundreds of people were killed, according to Palestinian health authorities. Joining me for more on this is Tel Aviv-based news correspondent Ross Cullen. Ross, thank you for joining us on the programme tonight. First, I want to go to the humanitarian uh, corridors that Israel has promised now that it will not block the delivery of food, water and medicine from Egypt for civilians in Gaza. But do we know how likely... Uh, how quickly that we're likely to see these aid corridors days into the offensive on the Gaza Strip in which over 3,000 people have died. And will it mean uh, a pause then in violence and, and, and a pause in the in incursion? Yeah, there's a couple of things that came out of Joe Biden's trip here to Israel, Claire. One of those things was the discussion about humanitarian aid, with the U.S. president announcing $100 million in extra funding for the Palestinian people, but not giving any specifics about how that money will be allocated or when it will trickle down to the Palestinian population in the Gaza Strip. Also, that agreement from the United States and Israel that Israel says it will not block aid going into Gaza as long as it satisfies three conditions. That aid has to go in via Egypt. Israel saying it will not allow any humanitarian aid to go through the border it controls until all the hostages abducted by Hamas during their atrocity here on the 7th of October are released. Second condition, as you laid out, also there needs to be a restriction on food, water and medicine. At the moment, no guarantee that fuel will be among the trucks that will be entering Gaza. And also, there needs to be the condition that the the aid has to be targeted towards civilian populations and not fall into the hands of Hamas. We do understand, though, that it could be up to 20 trucks that have had the approval from the United States and Israel to be departing from Egypt over the Rafah border crossing, which Egypt controls. But Israel also has to approve anything going in via that Rafah border crossing, even though it's the Egyptian border. The United Nations humanitarian chief has been in Egypt today, says there is 
food stockpile that is aid ready to go. It just needs the approval of e Israel, Egypt and the United States. And we now do believe that approval has come. We could see these trucks moving into Gaza during Thursday. All right. Now, U.S. President Joe Biden, of course, visited Israel earlier. He met with Benjamin Netanyahu and he said he believed the other team, in his words, um, were responsible for the Al-Ali Baptist Hospital bombing. Uh, what's been the response to that and how is his language and indeed his trip as a whole being viewed there? Well, uh, just looking at his language, he had three different press statements. Uh, Claire, he had his first opening statements just shortly off the plane. Then he attended the Israeli war cabinet and then he had a closing uh, press statement as well. It was during the first of those statements that he said, uh, we believe the other team did it, not you, uh, looking at Benjamin Netanyahu. And then a little bit further on, uh, perhaps his advisers had had a word in his ear and he clarified by saying, we believed it was a, a terrorist group inside uh, the Palestinian terror of the Gaza Strip that uh, carried out this attack, so trying to harden some of the language as well. That's certainly what Israel and the United States now do believe, that the attack was carried out because it was the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, one of the smaller militant groups inside the Gaza Strip, fired a rocket towards Israel, went wrong, misfired and crashed into the hospital. Uh, the Islamic Jihad groups say that wasn't us, we deny it. Uh, Hamas have said it wasn't them and they both groups have said it was an Israeli airstrike that hit the uh, hospital. Uh, now, we do know that there has also been this, uh, the, the, the problems related to the hospital, because immediately after the attack on uh, that facility and the hundreds of people who lost their lives in that instant, Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian president, pulled out of his planned meeting and the planned summit in Jordan with US President Joe Biden. So the US president was only here in Israel for a matter of hours, Claire. He didn't go to Jordan uh, as planned. And that summit that was meant to be taking place with the King of Jordan and the Egyptian president as well was called off. All right. Uh, the blame game continues, as you say, Ross, but as yet no independent international investigation launched into the bombing. No, there's been geolocation and there have been photos released by the Israeli Defence Forces. They say they've also released some audio, uh, which apparently uh, you can hear Hamas fighters discussing whether they're sometimes allies, sometimes rivals in the Palestinian Islamic Jihad group. They were discussing, was it them who set off the rocket from a cemetery, from a launch um, site in a cemetery behind the hospital uh, when it uh, uh, misfired, malfunctioned and then they crashed into the hospital? Those two Hamas fighters on the audio released by Israel are apparently discussing whether that was a misfire by that rocket. But no, there has been so far no external independent adjudication on which side carried out the attack on the hospital. OK, there we leave it. Ross Cullen, thank you for joining us tonight from Tel Aviv with the very latest from there. Now, Bellingcat is an investigative journalism group that specialises in fact-checking and they've been taking a closer look at the Gaza hospital blast. And here with more is Bellingcat senior researcher Colina Koltai. Um, thank you for joining us on The Tonight Show tonight, uh, Colina. Tell us about your investigation into, into what happened at the hospital site and what methods you used. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Uh, as soon as we heard about the uh, attack and the damage at the hospital, uh, the team, uh, which is globally distributed across the world, uh, began trying to collect and archive images, videos, um, stories, any bit of media that we could find um, across social media, uh, 
to try to sort of put together a picture of what was happening. Uh, so this was going um, all through the night. I am currently in New York and the rest of the team is in Europe. And so we were uh, collecting content um, from like Telegram, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, um, or X uh, to begin to try to piece together uh, bits of the story. But there's a lot of uh, misinformation out there, so I suppose it's critical in how you wade through that in order to get, um, you know, the, the, the images that you have. Tell, tell us about those images and how they fit against the account of, um, of the IDF of Israel and those of the Palestinian authorities. Yeah, uh, right away we've been seeing images and videos that were actually of older content, um, sometimes from like one, two or three years ago. Um, and so we immediately began to try to not just uh, geolocate, so actually confirm that it did take place in Gaza at the, hotel, at the hospital, but also try to chronolocate to make sure it occurred at the time um, that people said it was happening. So um, uh, throughout the night and then later on into the day when we got better images, better pictures in daylight instead of night, uh, we were able to start um, verifying those uh, images and videos. Um, and in particular, we were able to take a few different videos um, and confirm that for sure uh, they were taken um, at the site of the supposed attack um, and start putting together images of the craters and the damage uh, to begin to get a better sense of what was going on. And they do show images of, of craters in the area. I mean, the question is here, how long before we get definitive answers here? And doesn't that all depend on a ground investigation? You're operating, as you say, from New York. Um, you, you know, you're, you're, you're taking information that's on the internet and elsewhere. But essentially, how important is, is, is the, the reality on the ground to getting answers to this? You know, we you can't do one without the other. If there wasn't anyone on the ground documenting what was happening, we couldn't do our work at, by doing an in-depth analysis of it. So, you know, like right now, we can't uh, have a conclusion on like who is, is responsible for the attack. We can't point one finger at the other. Um, but we do know that uh, the size of the crater um, is not consistent with what we would call like the joint direct attack munition or a JDAM. Um, and so it doesn't, it seems to be something smaller versus those really larger bombs. Uh, but we can tell that the ammunition was detonated near the grassy areas that were full of people. So we do know that something did happen there, uh, that there is craters, even though some reports said that there weren't craters um, and that there was certainly a loss of, like, serious loss of life. All right, there we leave it. Thank you um, for bringing us details of your investigation. That's uh, Kalina Koltai from Bellingcat joining us from New York tonight. Thank you for that. Thank well, you. Joining me now in studio to discuss this further is Finnafall Senator Malcolm Byrne, Labour Senator Marie Sherlock, and political correspondent with the Irish Examiner, Kira Phelan. You're all very welcome along uh, to the programme tonight. Um, I want to come to you first, Marie Sherlock, because on this, your leader, Ivana Bacic, has, you know, um, she issued a release. She's spoken with all about it today. Uh, your party says there's mounting evidence of war crimes by Israel. Specifically, what's concerning you? Well, I think the first thing to say is obviously what happened in the hospital last night. This is what happens in a war situation that um, appalling atrocities and, and you know, if it, we, 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 we may never know who was behind the bombing last night at that hospital. Uh, uh, but I think that the, the key issue now is that... Should we not be able to find that out? Of course, and we've called for the International Criminal Court to investigate. But the, 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 the reality is that as of tonight, there's about 3,000 uh, Palestinians dead, about 9,000 Palestinians injured, 1,400 Israelis dead. And there are war crimes on both sides, barbaric acts mm. um, by Hamas. And then we have a stepping up of this 
horrendous campaign of oppression of the Palestinian people by the Israeli government and in particular by the IDF. Uh, and so, you know, I think uh, tonight when the Labour Party was, was discussing the, um, when there was the motion in the Dáil and we'll have it tomorrow in the Shannad, we very clearly called for a condemnation of the Israeli government. And I think we need to be unequivocal at that as much as we, 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 we condemn Hamas. Um, we, and, we, and we need to call for an immediate cessation um, of violence. And that there is no, th this needs to be the turning point. We, ha we can't just go back. This has been the history mm. for how many, from so many decades now, where there is a period of violence and then it just re resorts back. So we actually need to use this as, as the path now to actually getting peace in the Middle East and particularly for the Palestinian mm. people and Israel as well. Do you believe the government response is falling short in that regard? We have heard calls for restraint from both the Taoiseach and the Thornish on this. We've heard from Michael D. Higgins. Um, but, you know, we have heard, I suppose, um, you know, voices of concern uh, from the Irish government here. You don't believe it's enough? No, to, to be fair, I think the Taoiseach and Thánaiste have been, have been quite strong over the last number of days. I, I, but I do believe the time now is to be even stronger. And I think, you know, we absolutely have to uh, condemn both sides and what they are doing here. Call out what the Israeli government is doing and also Hamas and, and, and whoever else. But I, I think the key issue here is that the European Union has a very critical role to play. And certainly the actions by Ursula van der Leyen have been deeply unhelpful, I believe, um, uh, particularly at the end of last week when she, you know, made a unilateral call to go and visit Israel. And 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 and, and we called that out, and, and indeed the president has called that out, and I know the Taoiseach and Thonishta did as well. Uh, do we need to go further, Malcolm Byrne, in, in uh, I suppose, our, our response to this unfolding humanitarian disaster and where it's all going? Well, I... I... I think I'd agree very strongly with Marie that the people who uh, are suffering most are the innocent civilians. Uh, I think there is some element of positive news if this humanitarian corridor to allow uh, the delivery uh, of food and medicines, if that can proceed, I think that's something that's welcome. I think what is critical is that we do have a ceasefire and that we do move toward a, a long-term solution uh, for the Middle East. I think the but problem... On, on the issue of condemnation well, of Israel, I, I, is there, I, I is there, the problem, is there a problem or a challenge but I, I, I think here's, around that here, within here's, government? Here's part of the problem. I think uh, if you look at Israel, if Israel moves toward a ceasefire, um, there are no guarantees that Hamas or Islamic jihads, who don't believe in Israel's right to exist, will acknowledge that in any way. And yes, there are crimes being committed by Israel, but equally there are continuing atrocities being committed by Which the government Hamas has condemned and, 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 in, and, and had. around and has, Hamas. Has, has, has very clearly. And one of the challenges, I think, which you know, people shouldn't lose sight of, is when on the 7th of October, uh, Hamas attacked uh, Israel. It literally went from door to door and at a music festival. Mm. It attacked men, women and children, 1,400 people, uh, a town the size of... Um, Ferns or Stradbally or Swinford was wiped out yeah. and there were 199 hostages, mm -hmm. not just Israeli, being held by Hamas And, and what Israel. about what we've seen since then, Malcolm Byrne? So, so anywhere... And now over 3,000 Palestinians dead so in the, Gaza. The, the position and, which is... And actually no firm timeline on when this humanitarian corridor will in fact be opened apart from saying, yes, look, we will allow it. We don't know when. Well, I, I, I think if you look at where the approach has been, and I, I, I agree, I think that there has been a more, and as the Thonish just said, a more balanced approach now mm -hmm. uh, on the part of the European Union. Uh, the European Union is the biggest provider of humanitarian aid uh, to Palestine. 
The government, as you'll know, today committed to another 13 million uh, in aids to Palestine. And we've got to, to work towards, because you know, there are geopolitical considerations. The biggest fear about what will happen here now is that this will escalate. If we see and remember... Has it not escalated? Hamas, I mean, is that what... Is well, that if, the, Hezbollah, what if Hezbollah, again, which like Hamas, are you know, a death cult sponsored um, by Iran... If we then see, you know, further engagements by So that's Iranian where the fear sponsored. of condemnation comes from our end. Marie Sherlock, what would you say to that? Like, like in some ways, I think we're, we're, we're kind of getting caught in the weeds here of, of, of all the various groups and what's going to... Like, the, the reality is that we have an unstable situation in the Middle East going back decades, right? There's a Palestinian people, particularly in the Gaza Strip, who are facing annihilation. That is what the Israeli government have said they are going to do in terms of depriving them of the most basic means of subsistence in terms of fuel. And yes, Which is wrong. And, 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 Which is and, and, wrong, and we Marie. need to call that out. But the key thing now is I think Ireland can play a very unique and pivotal role in ensuring that the European Union can actually move into a space where we're talking about a two-state mm. settlement for the, the, the future of Palestinians sure, so far, and Israelis. So, so and, far, and, and, that hasn't... I mean, so far, anything that we've said has made no difference when you Hamas, see what, what, what Ursula von der Leyen um, has done and the uh, EU response to date. And, but, 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 but I think we have no choice but to step up and right. actually make that point. Uh, Keir, like, but, but, if we have but, any interest but, in seeing Marie. a permanent peace, you know, and it's the same in this country. Like, is it, you know, ultimately, you know, d- like... People had to step up and be brave, right? Okay, and I think certainly for Ireland, in terms of where we are, we, 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 you know, we don't have necessarily huge money to be offering in terms of aid, but we have political influence in terms of the European Council to actually bring about a situation where Europe is going in now mm. to try and ensure yeah. that there is a but settlement is crucial, for Palestine. I, I, I agree with you on all of that. And, and your party and government support a two-state solution, and that has been our policy for a long time. The problem is, is that you are dealing with Hamas and Islamic Jihad okay. and the Palestinian people are suffering. And Hamas, remember, don't believe in a two-state solution. They believe I... in wiping Israel right. off the face absolutely. of the earth. Absolutely. No, 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 I absolutely accept that, of course. Here, um, the Thornish has announced extra funding package of €13 million Euro, um, for Gaza. How, how will that benefit the people there? And how quickly is that going to be rolled out as yeah. part of aid efforts? Um, so he mentioned it in his speech in the Dáil today, so 10 million of that will be for the UN Works and Relief Agency and then 3 million will be towards the humanitarian coordination um, on the UN behalf. So this will bring in, uh, in total funding then from the Irish government, about 29 million euro and then over um, 600 million from the EU itself. So um, as I understand it, it's to be immediate and that's the plan. And just to touch on the points as well, that Malcolm and Marie made today, that, and I believe at the PP tonight, it was brought up at both the Fianna Fáil PP and the Fine Gael PP, um, the Taoiseach, uh, actually worried about the other war that we haven't spoken about in the last couple of days in terms of maybe the impact this is going to have on the war in Ukraine. Will Russia take advantage of that? Um, secondly, he also spoke about, you know, the diseases that uh, they're fearful of, certain diseases like cholera breaking out in Gaza. He and the Dáil today calling um, for three things on behalf of the Irish government, a humanitarian ceasefire for Hamas, to um, release hostages and then thirdly for Israel importantly to turn back on the power and water for the people that are suffering there tonight at the Fianna Fáil PP meeting Malcolm might be able to tell you a bit more but I do believe that Tonish and Micheál Martin actually echoed somewhat of the Taoiseach's comments earlier this week and said that the initial EU response was unsteady and that he was glad that there had been some balance brought about the situation now. Yeah, and just briefly, you know, let's let's just talk about um, 
Joe Biden being in Israel and, and how, you know, his language will be viewed there. He talked to kind of sporting analogies, you know, I think it was the other team as he looked at Benjamin Netanyahu. A, sort of a very casual use of language and what is a very volatile situation, Marie. Uh, do you think that his, 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 his arrival and his, his meeting in Israel was, was, was helpful and useful today in this situation? Well, I suppose the US isn't a neutral broker in all of this. You know, they have very clearly uh, taken the side of, of, of Israel. Mm. And um, and I think the comments, um, you know, I'm not sure how helpful they were, to be honest with you. Um, but obviously they were designed for a particular audience back home um, in the US and obviously for the Israeli audience mm. as well. Like, I think ultimately, you know, th th I think this is the issue with regards to Israel and Palestine. You know, who can actually step up as, as a neutral broker here to actually ensure? Yeah. Well, because they're all got vested well, interests. Also, but I suppose the thing is for me, you know, and, and I, I suppose just to pick up on, you know, it is about the temporary reliefs that as a country we can provide. But like we have an occupied territories bill that like is in is at a standstill now in the Dáil, it was passed, you know, through the Dáil and Shannad. And, you know, the government, you know, both the previous government and the current government have failed right. to, to, to actually recognise it. And I suppose for me, it's, it's about saying, actually, no, we need to recognise the Occupied Territories Bill now, enact it, and take a stance as a country that we want a permanent settlement it, out of this catastrophe. Okay, briefly, that's Burn, it is. Is, now, is now the time to progress that? Uh, well, I, I, I think and it comes back to the crucial point about, you know, the role of the US. And I, I do accept it's not an honest broker, but Anthony Blinken, as Secretary of State, was, you know, in there trying to hold Israel back because prior to all of this, and I think part of the reason is why did Hamas carry out the attack that it did at the time, was because Israel was engaging in talks with Saudi Arabia, trying to normalise relations in that well, context. What we see from today is the US giving its full backing to Israel. In fact, I think Biden is going back to US Congress to seek more funding in order to, to give them more in the way of defence uh, financial but, aid. But, but I, I, I think what you also saw today, which is if you look at the opening of the humanitarian corridor, was the US applying pressure in order to ensure that happens. At the end of the day here, we must ensure that international law is followed. I think Ireland has played, I think the Tisha Kantanish have been very clear around that, and Maria's right, yeah. we can play a very important role. Um, there have been too many deaths uh, on, on both sides. We need to look uh, at a ceasefire. Yes, those who are responsible for the crimes have to be held to mm. account. Hamas needs to release uh, the hostages, right. and we need to look toward the long-term two-state solution. Mm. All right, OK. Uh, my panel is staying on with me. After the break, we're going to get the latest on the flooding in Cork, so do stay with us. Welcome back. The town of Middleton in Cork was impassable today due to severe flooding caused by Storm Babette. Cork County Council stated that more than 100 properties have been flooded. Here's local councillor Anne-Maria Hearn. They have to bring in dinghies and rowboats to actually get people out of businesses, out of shops. Um, there was 260 pupils in Middleton College. There is elderly people living along the main street of Middleton all of their homes, their businesses, they're all underwater. Well, Fianna Fáil's Malcolm Byrne, Labour's Marie Sherlock and political correspondent with the Irish Examiner, Kira Phelan, have stayed on with me to discuss this further. We're also joined down the line by Alan O'Reilly from Carlow Weather. Alan, thank you for joining us. Your reaction to this, because I think many people have been shocked at the severity of the floods um, that we've seen in the south of the country, especially in areas of Cork. 
Yes, indeed. Um, over a month's rainfall has fallen in 36 hours with intense rainfall over a very short duration of time, which has sadly brought a lot of flooding. Obviously, we've had a very wet uh, couple of months, so water tables were high. The weather models did show that this was a possible outcome, and unfortunately, the worst-case scenario has now hit, and there's many people um, tuning in tonight from parts of Cork and Waterford that are sadly flooded, including even parts still flooding in Cork. Castle Martyr has had the river banks burst in the last two hours and is closed off now. So very sad to see the images and even very, I suppose, annoying fact that we don't have a flood warning system and that people probably weren't as prepared as they should have been for this event, Claire. Are we, uh, in terms of where we're at now, are we over the worst of it, Alan? Well, the worst of the rain is now in the east, so there is a yellow warning in place for Wexford, Wicklow and Dublin. It's a very wet night along many parts of the east and the north of the country. Thankfully, the rain, the worst of the rain has cleared us out, but there is some more rain to come overnight, early tomorrow morning. Um, some heavy showers again, which will obviously impact people trying to clean up. There's also some more heavy rain to come tomorrow night on Friday. The worst of that looks to be in Kerry, so hopefully Cork and Waterford will escape, but there is still more rain to come. At the moment, it looks like the weekend will see less rainfall, still some rain, but less rainfall. So the worst has passed, but there is still some more rain that will, I'm, I'm sure, complicate the clean-up. Alan, you talked there about a national flood warning system that you believe we need in place in this country. You know, what difference would that make to, say, the orange warning issued by, you know, Met Air and for counties that'll end at a certain time and that they do issue this traffic-like system of weather warnings? the flood alert system, how, how would it differ? It would make people aware of the risk of actual flooding rather than the rainfall because, you know, while an orange level rainfall, you know, can ha fall, if the rain hasn't already fallen for the last few weeks and water table isn't high, it won't have the same impact. You know, people were sent to school in these areas and then children were having to be collected by tractors and, you know, People were not prepared, mm. sandbags were not in place, people were scrambling to try and respond. You wouldn't stop the flood but you would help people prepare for it and hopefully limit the damage. And we really need a flood warning system in this country. Climate change has shown us that these extreme weather events are going to become more prevalent and are going to be worse. OK, um, let's bring our panel in at this point. Um, Kira. The, the government is going to provide funding to those impacted by the severe flooding. Is there a sense in Cork that they kind of feel forgotten and ignored when, I mean, there was very little warning around this aside from you know, as I say, the traffic light warning system that we have in place around rainfall, but not around yeah. the risk of severe floods like we've seen. I think there's a couple of elements to, to this. And Alan actually is touching it. Like the government in 2016 agreed to establish a national flood warning system. It's still in progress. There, I don't know why it's been so slow to, to progress there. I, I do know there's a steering group in place and they're looking at the implement, implementation of it, but surely it should have been escalated uh, when it was first agreed on in 2016. Um, the government have said and indicated that there will be flooding um, relief made available to businesses and residents. And then thirdly, I think the question on everybody's lips is how were people not prepared properly for this. Mm. Um, a lot of questions coming from TDs as to why this wasn't a red uh, weather warning. Now, a lot of people would say that, you know, for Met Air and to do that, they would have to place the whole county of Cork in a, a red weather warning and they can't just do uh, parts of Cork. But again, it seems like that 
as Alan said, you know, kids went to school this morning. They weren't expecting to be piggybacked out of their classrooms with water up as far as the windowsills. So I think government as well will look at this in the coming days to establish the facts around how it got so bad and how maybe the local yeah. authorities weren't prepared as they should have been for this. Yeah, 2016, Malcolm. I mean, that's a long time to have a steering group and still be making a decision about putting a national flood alert system in place. No, I, I accept it. And, so what's uh, going on we need nine it. years later? Uh, and I think if, you know, listening to Anne-Marie Seven Harm years later. In, Sorry, uh, just to clarify, uh, seven years. I mean, but yeah. still an no, awful long still, time for people and, and, um, in the likes of Middleton who are so badly affected and, and in East Cork as yeah. well, so well, badly affected. We, we would have seen from Anne-Marie Hearn in Middleton. I know at our parliamentary party meeting, um, my colleague, Pauric O'Sullivan, who's the Fianna Fáil TD for Cork North Central, he talked about his native Glenmire in some of the areas and where he talked about that in Glenmire, you know, this once in a century event has now happened three times in the last 12 years. Uh, we've seen it in Wexford as well on a regular basis, that events that we thought, you know, only once in a in, yeah, in So we in, know in about this so, so and we know are, we're going to see more of it. So, I, so what, I, what about the lack of action? I, I entirely agree we need that. Part of it is also the supports that are in place, mm -hmm. uh, which Kira's mentioned that are in place. Uh, for businesses and also for households. I think that there is a broader challenge which came up, which is now uh, around for a lot of those households and businesses not being able to get insurance. Um, this came up uh, quite a lot at our parliamentary party today. Uh, and we're facing the reality of climate change. Um, these events are happening um, far too often. People who are dismissive of climate change, you know, now we are seeing the real effects. And that does mean that we have got to future-proof our economy and society okay. to, right. to address it. Um, we heard that the head of forecasting and Met Aaron uh, talked about warning fatigue mm. uh, from the public. I mean, is that uh, does that play a part in it that we get all these kind of all oh, different storm? Who's which is the latest storm in town, and do we really kind of get the significance of? be it an orange warning or a red warning, I think everyone listens to, but if you're getting the likes of an orange warning that, that people tend to play it down in their own minds. Yeah, well, look, I think, I think the thing is, like the sophistication of the mathematical models that forecasters now use should mean that, we're able, that they're able to issue warnings for, for particular areas, um, or indeed at least limited to counties. And, and, and I suppose we do need to have a system that that is well and easily understood. But look, you know, just to say, like, I think the thing that really struck stuck for me today when I when I saw the scenes of of, of flooding, like the likes of Killa and Middleton, are not areas that typically see flooding. Castle Martyr sees flooding. Cork City, of course, you know, is is you know flooding year in year out. But uh, and that's the frightening thing. And that do you areas think it cost that, the authorities on the hop as well. Well, there. yeah, but but I suppose the frightening thing is that areas we, we we didn't really expect to flood are now experiencing this. And this is the issue, right? Mm. Okay, that like you know we're seeing changes in our climate now in our environment that things are happening that we didn't expect to see before. And and like you know when I look here in Dublin, you know you know we've seen studies over the last number of years which shows that if we see a two percent increase in uh, global temperatures or in the temperatures in, in Ireland by 2030, then 23,000 households or properties will be underwater mm -hmm. by 2030. So I think the key thing here is, like, it is mind-boggling to think that seven years on since that national flood planning 
was a plan was supposed to be put, you know first initiated that we're still mm. not there and 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 I suppose that you know critically we have to look at all areas it's not just the areas that are traditionally pr pr prone to flooding yeah how big a political issue is this Kira and do you feel it will be down the line if we're seeing more flooding events like this and the sense being that we don't have say the the flood the flood walls in place yeah. like we do in parts of Dublin but we don't in other other parts of the country which are now very susceptible as we're seeing. Yeah well like it's not the first time the people of Cork and other parts of the country have witnessed this and I mean how many times do you have to go through this devastation to your business and to your home and it's literally repeat every every year if not every second year and I know you know Leo Vradker apparently mentioned at the PP meeting tonight that the planning the upcoming planning bill that it will address the you know backlog of these flood relief schemes and it will deal with the delays to those. But I mean, like... Is it a planning issue? Is that what we keep hearing some, about? That, that there's flood a, relief that, schemes in certain, in certain parts of the country, in certain parts of Cork, yeah, that end up in the courts as well and you have objections to high walls. So he's saying tonight, you know, to his PP meeting and obviously it was raised mm. by um, Cork politicians there that they had concern about that and he's saying this planning bill that will come through the doll soon will address this matter. But I mean... How long is that going to take mm. and how many more times are we going to be sitting here on shows like this um, with the government having to give funding for residents and businesses and sporting organisations? But, but, but can I just say, I think the important thing here, right, is that it can't be just about building walls, right? We need to actually look at the whole of the environment. So what are we doing about green space, about trees, about all the other natural, uh, you know, sources of drainage? And I think this is the, the, the critical thing that we're seeing, particularly here in Dublin, is that, it can't, you know, building walls is not, the, is, is not the entire solution. Yes, it plays a part, right? But we have to look at natural yeah. sources of drainage as well. And, and I think that isn't being properly You're considered right. in the, many the, areas. The planning, bill, the, pl the planning bill is important. I think one other issue, which is, and it, there, were, there were two key measures in the budget that are often overlooked, are the two sovereign wealth funds uh, that were created, particularly the Future of Ireland Fund, but also the fund that was designed to deal with some of the environmental uh, uh, and maybe and other we should be maybe the face. point is we should be spending that money now. We will have to leave that conversation there for now. My thanks uh, to Kira Phelan and to Alan Riley who joined us with the very latest um, from Cork in the south of the country. Coming up next, how do we combat rising deaths on our roads? Stay with us. 
Welcome back. This year has seen a 30% rise in road deaths for the same period last year, with 152 lives sadly lost. I sit down with Assistant Garda Commissioner in charge of roads, uh, roads Policing and Community Engagement, Paula Hillman, earlier to discuss a new road safety programme aimed at secondary school students. Well, certainly, Claire, there have been education programmes in school. We have our schools programme and the RSA also go into schools. Um, this programme is slightly different in that it is aimed at a, a, an older age group, um, transition year five and six and, and not beneath that, but also for young adults and right into businesses as well. It's been running for quite a period of time in Limerick. Um, it is was run by um, a local roads policing sergeant in, in Limerick, um, Sergeant Tony Minniter, who who has is, is passionate about this, uh, and really it was it was his his idea and many years ago, um, when we had been seeing the increase in, in road deaths as well, it was something then that he had come and spoken to me about, and we looked at how we could look at this and, and roll it out on a national level. So we joined up with another sergeant from Monaghan, Sergeant Niall Leach, and together we've, we've ruled, we're ruling this out nationally now. OK, specifically, it's, it's for fifth and sixth year students. Mm -hmm. It's for, you know, older teens, if you like. Um, will it be graphic clips from the scenes of accidents? You know, is this how you're going to get your message through or how will um, young adults learn about the dangers of the road and the message that you're trying to impart to them? Well, the, the Lifesaver project is a mixture of videos uh, and they are real life videos. So we have the parents um, and loved ones um, of people who have lost their lives on the road. Um, they talk through the impact it's had on them. And then throughout that, we have uh, roads policing sergeants, our, our roads policing members, our community guardian. Now, we have uh, briefed over 100 guardians across the country who will be able to mm. facilitate um, the, the, the showing of, the, of these videos. But you know, just to give you some example, when we've said it is at a certain age group, those who are about to start driving. Equally, we can show it in businesses. We have showed it through Dell and ESB. But you will see videos, for example, of a young man um, who lost his life um, riding a motorcycle and he has a GoPro on his helmet and we see from the GoPro him uh, driving along the road on his motorcycle. We see that he is speeding but then we also see someone cutting across the road in front of him and he falls to the ground and he has died. You don't see him but you see it from his GoPro and the silence in the room and his mother talks about it. And that's why she does that. She doesn't want anyone else to experience what she saw or what happened to her. 152 people have been killed on our roads so far this year. And that's a 30% increase mm -hmm. on last year. You know, what do you attribute this worrying trend to? Because you're obviously trying to get the message through to young people in our schools. But, but what do you put down this, this massive jump in road deaths to? And it looks like we're going, taking a backward step in the area of road safety. Yes, and unfortunately, we're not an outlier in this. We're actually seeing many other countries mm. close by the same as we've come out of COVID. But I think if we go back to what we see causes road traffic collisions, we see people speeding on our roads. You know, this year to date, we've already detected over 120,000 people speeding. And when I say that, we're not talking about people who are just a little bit over the limit. You mm. know, there was today it's been covered about the person who uh, was uh, convicted 217 kilometres an hour. You know, driving yeah, at that so, speed. So what I'm saying is we know that's a problem, but we also know that enforcement in this area is key mm -hmm. and detections for speeding, for drink driving, for motorists using their mobile phone, they're all down. 
Well, they're not all down per se. And I think if you look at it in the context, so in terms of speeding, we are using um, both um, the average speed cameras mm. as well as roads policing members detecting. Uh, and I think if you look as well, how we can use technology. And I think it's something that we need to do as a country. Just to go down, back just to the issue of enforcement, um, you know, we had the Minister of State, Jack Chambers, saying that there was a need to strengthen enforcement. Mm -hmm. While education is key and is important, that the issue of enforcement and the number of visible Gardaí on our roads is something surely that you'd admit is, or the lack of Gardaí is part of the problem here. No, I think we are, we are committed to enforcement. Roads policing is a priority for us and remains a priority. If you look at our priority areas, we actually have more members in roads policing than we do in other priority areas. And not all, all roads policing enforcement, this is also an important point, is carried out by roads policing. So yes, we have a commitment to roads policing, but a quarter of our detections are carried out by uniform members, and that's reversed for drink and drug driving detections. And if we look how trends have changed and things have changed coming out from, of COVID, I think that's really important as well about the context of what we're seeing. You know, we are increasing our detections in drug driving. Drink driving is nearly back to pre-COVID standards. So it's down to what you're seeing is a change in trends that people are more likely to take drugs and go get behind the wheel than, than people to drink? Yes, we are seeing that. And we haven't seen the same return to nighttime economy as we had before COVID. So we are detecting more people with, with taking drugs and driving. OK, there we'll have to leave it. Assistant Guard, the Commissioner, Paula Hillman, thank you for joining us on the programme tonight. Thank you. That was the Assistant Guard, the Commissioner, speaking to me earlier. Well, Malcolm Byrne and Marie Sherlock have stayed with me to discuss this further and joining them as Transport and Motoring Editor with the Irish Independent, Geraldine Herbert. Um, what's your take on this? First of all, this Garda initiative about rolling out this national programme um, for young people in schools to teach them about, you know, road safety in order to, you know, reverse that wor worrying trend we're seeing about, you know, a 30% increase in road deaths this year. Uh, is that part of the solution? Um, yeah, look, I think that the statistics are shocking. I think definitely when you get fifth and sixth years, they're very impressionable at that age. If you can put an actual face to the statistics and show the devastation that, you know, road fatalities cause, the families that are left behind, I think that's really impactful and it will make a difference. It's not going to make a difference today or tomorrow, but as we go for forward, it is really, really important. But I, I think the message has been lost at the moment in the sense that, you know, the, the reaction by most politicians or by some politicians is, to, excuse the pun, to reinvent the wheel when it comes to road safety. Mm. We know what works. We know enforcement works. We only have to look and um, assistant, or the commissioner was, um, referred to that was about the average speed cameras. We see the success of them on the M7, the stretch on the M7 in Tipperary, the Dublin Port Tunnel where compliance is at 99%. And it shows that when there's a real risk of, of drivers being caught, they will modify their behaviour. So why don't we have more of those? We also know that in the UK they're rolling out um, AI technology that can actually detect mobile phone usage and seatbelt wearing. They can detect this through a camera, so we don't That's need something extra That's that police. is being dis discussed now, but there are kind of uh, other issues that are coming into, into the fray, like GDPR issues and, you know, I suppose a, a, an an a potential invasion of, of privacy of the driver. But, I mean, if we can detect whether you're, who is behind the wheel of a speeding car, we can detect whether that speeding car is also on the phone. Our seatbelt, where is the conflict so, in that sense? And what, what's so the can... issue, do you think, there? I mean, does that require more Gardaí in order to man that technology? Is that the issue there? Is it simply a resourcing problem and that it, it costs a lot to have 
uh, technology that's going to catch speeders. It could be a combination of both. I mean, these these photographs do have to be manually um, gone through, so mm. there, there is a component there. But we also know that policing, that the number of police assigned to the roads is down to 2017 levels. So, I mean, it's no wonder that, you know, we have the... the, 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 the results on our roads at the moment, there is very little chance of being caught no matter what you do. And I think most people will agree with that at the moment. We do not see roadblocks, we do not see road checks and we don't see. Mm. We see the odd speed van and as I said, we know though the average speed cameras work, but where yeah, are I they? Mean, I mean, you know, like what Geraldine's saying is so true. People are not seeing uh, checkpoints. They're not, anecdotally, they're not seeing Gardaí uh, on the roads. Where are they? That, that's true. And it's been one of the issues we've been raising about trying to increase uh, the number of Gardaí, that there were 800 came through Templemore last year. There are decisions that are made in particular Gardaí divisions to focus Gardaí on particular problem areas. Geraldine is right in terms of the average speed. They're also being pulled away from roads and policing. I mean, I think that's been one of the issues that we had a number of Gardaí you know, in, in the past year that have been pulled away from that and maybe moved on to other areas. Is, is the priority, is the focus there? When you see the number of road deaths we're seeing, is the focus and the priority on, on catching uh, people who are taking, you know, a dangerous view on the roads? Yeah, well, I, 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 I think that's fair. And I mean, we've, we've always got to remember that for all of those road deaths, they're not just statistics, they're individuals, they're families. Mm. You know, Minister Jack Chambers has made very clear it is about enforcement. I... I do agree, actually, that in terms of how we can use AI and new technologies, uh, that will be transformative. We do need to have the safeguards in place. Uh, I think we're, we also need to look at, you know, we will move at some stage towards AI-enabled vehicles, whereby the controls will actually be safety by design within the vehicles. But in the short term, does that uh, the replace does around, that replace Gardaí? I mean, if you have this recruitment crisis in the force, and you have you don't, and you're saying now we don't have an adequate number of Gardaí out in force, uh, enforcing... We, we, enforcing we, we, um, need, we need more Gardaí generally. I mean, that's... The that's law, ex, then, that's I mean, accepted. are you looking... Do, do, does AI do the job? No, I, I, th I think moving into the future, that is, we're going to be using, you know, as the Assistant Commissioner said, we're going to be using technology to a greater extent. So, mm -hmm. like, the average speeding, which is working quite effectively on the M7 and the port tunnel, uh, we will use AI to detect, you know, particular activity. It's critical, though, in how we roll that out, that there are safeguards in yeah. place, because I would certainly have some of the privacy concerns. Um, in the short term, though, the question is going to be around increased enforcement. But I think in the long term, and the Assistant Commissioner is right, yeah, and right. I think it's a bigger debate okay. in society we And we do, have. look, we're hearing about, you know, that it, it comes down to enforcement. It's something, you know, government has admitted as well. But we're, now we're also getting kind of new policy and new legislation coming on, like, you know, bank holiday... Um, double fines or double points or increased fines for motorists at that point of the year. Is there any point in new legislation when we're not enforcing what we have? Well, I think, look, uh, I think it's a bit of a gimmick, to be honest with you, to be talking just about bank holidays. Yes, we know that there is greater incidence of people dying in bank holidays, but people die throughout the year, you know, and, 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 and I think there's a number of parts to this. There's the awareness part, and great credit to Ungarda Shikana for engaging with teenagers, and hopefully that'll be rolled out across the country. There is the enforcement, and when we look at the figures, when we look at 2013 to, to, to last year, over the space of 10 years, there's 140 less Gardaí on-roads policing uh, last year compared with, with, with 10 years ago. Like, that is absolutely unacceptable and, and, and to your point that we're not seeing the Garda checkpoints on the road. But also to me as well, the fines. Like, you know, it's €160 Euros, um, if you are speeding on the road and three penalty points. 
I don't believe that's enough. So, like, you know, that is... That's there a, should that, be bigger fines or more penalty that, 160 points. euros is a lot of money to somebody who uh, obviously is scraping by, but it's nothing to somebody who is a lot of money. And we need Are to... Are you likely be, then to see more cases being disputed in the courts? Well, I mean, is that like, well, likely to have knock-on effects if you're going to you know, quadruple the, the, well, the, the fine there yeah, well, or put well, somebody well, off the road. Well, well, actually, I'm never sure that fines are actually going to work. I think actually we need to be uh, do something much more serious. Like I think if I understand it in Sweden, you know, if you're caught speeding, mm -hmm. you're put off the road for a number of weeks. And I think we need to send out that very serious message that there's a zero tolerance attitude towards speeding in this country. And it's really interesting <sighs> that when technology is deployed, like the average speed cameras, that compliance is at 99%. Oh, so I think that, you know, it, it, technology absolutely has a role to play. Yeah. But I think we need, really need to look at what the fines and what the okay. penalties are. Would, for, would you, for, would you for... agree with that, Chair? that maybe we need to look at tougher penalties as well as, I suppose, greater enforcement here? Um, I, I actually just think it's enforcement more than anything because if we look at the penalty points and the number of, of points that people get, the penalty point system does work. The majority of people get one set of penalty points and they don't re-offend. It's like a pyramid if you think about it. At the bottom are the people who get them once. So once they get them, they don't go on to re-offend. The problem is they're not given out. There isn't a great enough risk of getting caught. Also, the, uh, the what idea... Do you say about the change of trends just briefly that, you know, drugs are more... what there's what they're doing is they're picking up more drug driving detections than drink driving detections. There's and no that's why you're seeing a drop in detection there's there. There's no surprise there because we've only recently started testing for drugs. So when you've only started testing and you're really comparing it to a very low number, you know, when you start off, it's going to increase. But we know from the figures that came out in the Irish Times, we're not testing for drink either. Mm. We're at below half of what we were testing in 2018 and 2019. So there's no surprise that they're down either. All right, there we'll have to leave that. That is it from us tonight. My thanks to Malcolm, to Marie, to Geraldine. Our our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can now find us on Instagram and on TikTok. But from all the team here, good night and do take care. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.